Hi, I'm Frank Tissia Burns, and this is 360 North. Many know Nunavut as the country's latest territory, and that it was created in 1999. Unfortunately, that's often where knowledge stops. Next year, the territory in its current form will be celebrating its 20th birthday. I say it that way because what we know as Nunavut has been traditional Inuit territory for thousands and thousands of years. But the signing of the Nunavut Agreement was actually only 25 years ago, in 1993. So what is Nunavut? I don't know if there's anyone better to answer that question than my guest today. Eluki Kotiak is the president of Nunavut Tungavik Inc. And that's the organization that ensures that promises made under the Nunavut Agreement are carried out. Well, thank you for being here, Luki. Thank you for taking the time and welcome to the podcast. Mm. To get started a little bit, what we were talking about just before is uh, what I want to do in this episode is get into how Nunavut came to be, essentially. I mentioned in, in the introduction that it's the 25th anniversary of the land claims signing and the 20th anniversary is going to be next year of the actual kind of establishment of the territory. So big, broad question to get started, but how is Nunavut different politically than, say, a different territory or another province? Yeah, that is a very broad yeah. uh, question. But I think what I'm going to do is start off about the 25th anniversary. July 9, 2018 marks 25 years since the Nunavut Act and the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement Act were received royal assent in the Canadian Parliament. And that was a great big feat because it changed the map of Canada. And I think it would have been a great feat for any people Mm -hmm. to change the map of the nation. But one of the things that I've continued to say this year is that it was an especially great feat for Inuit because Inuit in living history were living out on the land and not living in communities and they were speaking Inuktut, they were living off animals. And I think sometimes Canadians forget how recent it was that Inuit were living out on the land. It was my father's generation and generations before him, and it's my generation that has grown up in communities. And it was young Inuit in the early 70s that had started talking about how they wanted to take more control over the matters that affected their lives. Because as you can imagine, the transition that Inuit faced being moved from the land into communities was disruptive to their lifestyle Mm -hmm. and the way of understanding. And it had an impact on absolutely everything from things that we eat to the way that we learn, the way we interact with each other. And everyone was in separate houses. So I think the social disruption was quite diverse and had a far-reaching impact. Young Inuit got together and realized that they needed to speak up about how Inuit needed to still be in control of their lives. And so the Inuit political movement in the current, in the like modern context was established in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And Inuit negotiated with the government, the crown, and were able to achieve an agreement And it was all done peacefully. Um, It was based on the persistence and insistence of Inuit that continued to have this vision. And I keep reminding young Inuit that it was young Inuit who had the bold, audacious vision. And it's our job now to continue to have a bold, audacious vision for the next 25 years. Mm -hmm. Um, There were things that were envisioned that have not come to realize yet. And there are things that 
we still need to work on. And there are many challenges. And I think it's important for us to continue to still tell the story of the political development of Inuit to inspire further young Inuit to take control and say, okay, we are going to be the voice for the future. Yeah, um, there's a lot in there that I want to get to. But to stay kind of in this time period a little bit, you mentioned that the beginning of this movement, I guess, if you want to call it that, started in the 70s. Do you know of anything that or any events that kind of launched this? Like, was there any specific issues that brought these young Inuit to the fore to really fight for the creation of Nunavut? So um, I wasn't a part of that, Mm. but from what I understand, and we've recently actually uh, commissioned that a documentary be developed. So it's called Kapiatetut, Fearless. Okay. And um, we're at the finalization editing and we're hoping to distribute it to communities because it's so important that young Inuit now understand how Nunavut was created. Um, one, for, and this, and the documentary I've watched it. It talks about how there was a period where Inuit felt intimidated, and often it was non-Inuit who arrived into um, Inuit homelands that asserted power mm-hmm. and authority. And so that is association that many Inuit still have today. Is that when they see non-Inuit coming into our communities, there's still that. Um, societal expectation and intimidation that they are in an authority position. So young Inuit were sent to different schools, to residential schools. Mm -hmm. And I think from what I understand, there were it was in these areas, in these institutions that young Inuit would share information about what they were experiencing in their part of the north. And they realized and talking together, realized that they had similar experiences. And I think that was the motivation to say this is not right. And to be because once they were able to learn English, they were able to um, learn the system Mm. of the mainstream of mainstream Canada and use that system in a way to assert Inuit rights. I wonder a little bit about kind of your personal history, if you don't mind getting into that. What motivated you to follow this path of kind of empowering Inuit politically and becoming president of NTI? As Inuit, all of us see the inequities in our in our communities, in our families. And we all, I think, have a sense of this is not right. Mm-hmm. And we talk about that in our homes when we're eating quok, frozen caribou together, when we're talking we talk about the inequities that we see. There's some people that get to the point where it's not enough to be aware of the inequities. And um, for me personally, I'm an introverted person and I grew up very shy. But I think I got to the point where my rage or my need to speak on behalf of, particularly on behalf of relatives who cannot speak Mm. English, to express how we still are very proud to be Inuk and we still very much want to live in a modern world, but in an Inuit way, with an Inuit worldview. And I think sometimes we're propelled into paths that we never envisioned. Um, So I would say that would be the same for me, where I my preference is to be quiet and alone and not speaking publicly, I guess, but you learn new skills to be able to express things that you think are important and that will make a difference. Were there any 
specific issues growing up that you kind of mentioned talking about it around the table, so to speak. Were there any issues that really stood out for you growing up that kind of propelled you again in this role a little bit more? I think um, for me, I mean, most recently when I was campaigning, and I guess it's nearly two years now, Mm -hmm. I would speak and focus on people that in my view, um, the North, the Arctic, Nunavut is often viewed as a barren land and that has lots of wildlife. Politically, often that's the focus. And I had decided that I was going to speak about things even if it was uncomfortable for me or even if it was uncomfortable for other people to hear. And so I spoke about healing and the need to heal from the drastic uh, transition um, that we've experienced. Because I think when there's no uh, venue in which people can express their dissatisfaction or their bitterness about what has happened to them, then we start taking it out on ourselves Mm. um, amongst our family and even by taking our own lives. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot we need to talk about as a society. And I think it has nothing to do with us being Inuit. I think it has to do with the experiences that we've been faced with. The other area I spoke about a lot was Inuit identity. Because I think as a person who's from mixed races, with a mother who's a Kallunak and a father who's an Inuk, I know what it is to be asked about one's identity Mm -hmm. and one is feeling like you're not really Inuk or feeling like you're not really Kallunak and how do you navigate in the world. But I also know that Inuit who are not the product of a mixed marriage also face that because they're not part of the modern world, but they don't feel like they're part of the traditional world. And so I think it's important as a society to speak about these things and talk about what is an Inuk. Um, The other area I spoke a lot about was um, language and culture. Mm -hmm. I think it's a foundation of who we are. And I know many Inuit who no longer speak Inuktut, but feel that they wish they could. I think that there's ways in which we can strengthen that. And I think the government has a role in strengthening that. And I think the last area that I spoke a lot about was Inuit empowerment. Because in my view, um, Inuit need to know that they have choices and that they can be the masters of their own destiny as we were prior to living in communities. And there's, we're not expecting to live on the land ever again in the same way that we did 50, 60 years ago, but that we expect to have some control over how our future is going to unfold. One of the negotiators that I've read had been quoted as saying, we want to be in a position where we can make our own mistakes. And I think that's where we're at. In line with that, I've previously had a conversation with uh, Sandra Nutik, mm-hmm. and that is something that she mentioned as well, is bringing the people back into the picture, essentially, when they're talking about the North. Can you expand a little bit more on that, about how um, you want to bring the people kind of to the fore a little bit more and how you do that through your work? So I think for me, um, the focus needs to be on people, because once we're at a position in a position as a society where we have healthy Inuit, self-reliant Inuit, Inuit with formal education, uh, Inuit confident to be able to navigate the Inuit world as well as the mainstream Canadian world that will have many more um, 
capable Inuit to be able to address some of the other issues in terms of wildlife or land resource management, things like that. Those will continue to be taken care of. But I think it's important that we focus on Inuit. Um, I know there's sayings that human resources are our greatest asset, things like that. I think it's bringing life into that. Um, Inuit, as you may know, means people. And um, in Inuit worldview, I think um, relationships between people, between family, between namesakes, between adopted families is so important. And I and I've been recently talking about how we need to strengthen that and take pride in that and strengthen that kinship relationship that we already have. And in a way, they could ask, act as a, a social safety network. And we don't always have to rely on mainstream and, or Western understandings of the world and view them as though they might be superior to what we understand. And we can take pride in our own understanding of the world. And actually, for us, it might be superior. How does Nunavut fit into that picture? How does having the territory actually help with kind of what you said earlier, having the ability to make your own mistakes? Nunavut is a landmass of one-fifth of the Canadian landmass. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge geography. And the population, 85% of the population is Inuit. But Inuit chose to have a public government. So the territorial government is a public government. It's not an Inuit government. But what was envisioned was that the territorial public government would behave similar to all jurisdictions and all public governments would work towards servicing the public. Mm -hmm. And in Nunavut, the public majority is Inuit. Mm -hmm. So the expectation was that the services and programs would be available in Inuktun the language of the majority population. The programs and services would be designed and developed using Inuit worldviews and understanding so that it could better serve the public majority. So I think that's the great difference about Nunavut. In When we're speaking about Canada generally, Nunavut is the only jurisdiction that has a homogeneous public majority that speaks a language that is not one of the official languages of Canada, French or English. And I keep repeating this to federal ministers who will listen to me. One of the things that I find extremely frustrating and actually very concerning is that because Inuktut is not recognized federally, Inuktut is not provided resources and support equitable to French and English. So in essence, the federal government, in my view, is still working on the colonial process of trying to make us Inuit more French or more English so that we can fit into the French and English Canadian society. And I think in this time of reconciliation, and I know that the prime minister, probably you and all the listeners know that there's no relationship more important than that with Indigenous peoples of Canada. And yet, in the, during the creation of Nunavut, there was a decision made to not talk about Inuktut as the working language of the public territorial government. And my view is that 25 years later, we should speak about that. And we should figure out how Canada can recognize Inuktut as a founding language of Nunavut, which would 
in my view, mean that they would provide the resources necessary so that the territorial public government can provide programs and services in Inuktut. I know last year Nunavutungavik Incorporated had worked with a professor in Toronto to get a report out that indicated that Inuktu is declining at 1% per year. Mm-hmm. And that might not sound like a lot, but I know from experience that very quickly language is lost if it's not used on a daily basis. Yeah, in doing research for before our chat, the language component was something that came up time and again um, and a lot in your work. You mentioned how language should is part of the foundation of the territory itself. But of course, the reality right now is that these services that are offered by the government are not offered in Inuktut. Um, yeah, I guess just to be more explicit, like why is that so important when it comes to expressing yourselves as Inuit? I think it comes down to a human right. Mm-hmm. I think it also comes down to a human dignity. Um, we grow up in our own territory, knowing it's our homeland, knowing we haven't come from anywhere else. And then for those individuals who don't speak English, they go into a store, they go into a a government office, they may or may not be able to get services. That might seem like a nuisance, but I think it's more than a nuisance. When we're speaking about health services, it could be a life and death situation where a person is unable to express the concerns that they have, the ailments that they have in their body directly to a nurse or to a doctor. So that in situations like that, it's more than a nuisance. One of the areas that I've been speaking very strongly about is in the school system. Mm -hmm. When a child goes into a kindergarten classroom in Nunavut um, and then goes through the school system up to grade 12, one would think where the majority public speaks Inuktut as their first language, that students would be able to take all their subject matters in Inuktut. That's not the reality in Nunavut. Um, Many listeners will have heard about residential school experience. And one of the things I've been saying is how ironic we no longer have residential schools that are deliberately trying to strip Inuit from their culture and their language Yet we have 42 schools across our territory that are English-speaking schools because the fact of the matter is the vast majority of the teachers in our school systems do not speak Inuktub. And I've been pressing the Department of Education, the Territorial Department of Education, to focus more on getting more Inuit trained to become teachers. I've also been pressing the federal government and telling them that they have a responsibility because they played a role in diminishing the ability for us to speak Inuktut by sending the older generation to the residential schools. In my view, they have a responsibility to support Inuktut in the school system and so that we can rebuild Inuktut so that it's thriving once again. When it comes to the federal government's role, do you see that as funding? Do you see it as a different kind of support? For sure, funding, Mm -hmm. yes. But I would like to share that in Nunavut, there's one French school Mm -hmm. because there's about 430 francophones in our whole territory. So the federal government provided all the funding to build the capital, to build the school, provides all the funding 
so that there are French-speaking teachers, provides all the funding so that there's enough material and resources in French. So in my view, that's the same type of support that Inuktut should garner in Nunavut. I'm going based off memory here, but the funding was about, what was it, 14 million, I think, for essentially the francophone or French language speakers in, in the territory. And it was only about 15 million for Inuktut through 2020, if I'm not mistaken. So I, I should have looked at my notes earlier no, to, no. to remind myself. <laughs> but yes, there's a great disparity between the French services and the small population of francophones. And then the amount of money that's provided for Inuktut services. Continuing with this kind of language line, um, there's a project going on right now where it's essentially a standardization of written Inuktut. Can you speak a little bit about that and what the goal is to kind of follow that project? So um, Nunavut Tungavi Incorporated is um, an organization that is also a board member of Inuit Tapari Kanatami, which is the national Inuit organization. So there's four different Inuit regions across Canada, and Nunavut is one region. So through Inuit Tapari Kanatami, there's a, there's a committee that's working on um, a, a standardized writing system. And the view is that with a standardized Inuktut writing system, it will be easier to be able to share different documents, materials, resources across Inuit Nunangat. And I think there's some um, aspiration that into the future, we'd be able to share resources even circumpolarly mm. with Alaska and Greenland. Has there been some pushback that you know to this project? Um, so within Nunavut, there's many dialects. Mm-hmm. And as an Inuktut speaker, when you listen to someone who speaks Inuktut, you can often pinpoint where they're from, just the way in which they speak. Having said that, Inuktut has historically been an oral language, and it was through um, Reverend Peck, I believe, that the writing system with syllabics came forward. And so there's people who are like in the eastern part of Nunavut, Many Inuit learn to write Inuktut in using syllabics. Mm-hmm. And in the western part of Nunavut, people would more often use Roman orthography, which is the English letters that we use, ABC. Um, so there's a number of writing systems currently that people are more comfortable with. And so some of the public discussion often is that we don't want to change the way in which we know how to write. Mm. Um, or we don't want our dialect to be changed or altered. Um, and I think one of the tasks that the committee members of ITK have is to communicate that there's no intention of changing the dialects and there's no intention of forcing anyone to use a different writing system. But there there's a desire to have one standard writing system to produce materials that can then be shared. And so if I, for instance, write to my aunt who doesn't speak English, if I wrote to her, I would still use syllabics, even if there was a a standardized writing system. So it doesn't change the behaviors we have in our families and our communities. And as communities who speak a specific dialect, we would continue to do that. To broaden a little bit, I don't know how else to describe it other than saying like ongoing issues, I guess, within the territory, Um, when you look at things like health and the rates of tuberculosis or housing or suicide rates or things like that. I guess from your perspective, 
often the media coverage of the territory seems to be really negative. So I'm wondering, how do you think there can be a bit more of a balance, if there needs to be a bit more of a balance between bringing awareness to these ongoing issues versus kind of focusing on just the kind of doom and gloom of the territory, which might just not be accurate overall? When we look at Nunavut statistically, it's true that the statistics are all very negative for the most part. Um, one of the things that I've been any opportunity I have to speak with Inuit, I say the statistics have nothing to do with us being Inuk. Mm. It is all to do with the experience we've had moving from the land to the communities and the and the traumatic experiences we've had as a society, whether it were dog slaughters, whether it be being your children being sent to schools. There are so many things that as a society we've experienced where we felt helpless, like we were not in control of our lives. And when, when there's no acknowledgement of that, we start to internalize that. And if our parents don't talk about it, that pain that they're carrying translates into our generation. And so then we start experiencing the pain and then we pass it along. And I think that's what's referred to as intergenerational trauma. Um, one of the things I often say is that growing up as an Inuk in Nunavut can be exhausting when all you hear from the media, all you hear from the public is you're probably not going to graduate from high school. You're probably going to commit suicide. You're probably going to live in poverty. You're probably going to be on income assistance. And to hear that constantly is something that kind of diminishes your soul. It feels so exhausting. And no wonder so many of us feel hopeless at times. And so I think it's important for us as Inuit to change that narrative. And I think media has a role in that. Um, Media, I think worldwide, focuses on many negative stories. So that is a reality. But I think one of the things that we can do is celebrate the amazing resiliency of Inuit and to start focusing on that and say, despite all these things that have happened to us and our families, look at us. This is what we're doing. Look at us. We changed the map of Canada. Look at us. We have our own territorial public government. I want to do a little bit of both, I guess, in this episode. Um, but to look at the issues right now when it comes to, even if it's income disparities between Inuit and non-Inuit in the territory, which translates to a lot of other, a lot of other issues that you, you mentioned earlier, what do you see as the major hurdles that are kind of ongoing in the territory as to where it is right now and where the vision that you mentioned earlier, where it wants to be? I think the first um, place to start would be the full implementation of the Nunavut Agreement. In the Nunavut Agreement, there's 42 articles. Article 4 is the basis for the territory of Nunavut. It created the territory of Nunavut. It created the Legislative Assembly. It created the public government. Um, so that's been implemented. Yet there are so many other articles, and I'm thinking Article 23 has not been fully implemented yet. And Article 23 speaks to Inuit employment. Mm -hmm. To achieve a representative workforce, 
So when we look at that, we often refer to 85% Inuit employment in the public service at the territorial public government, at the federal government within the Nunavut settlement area, even at the municipal government level. And so we know that the government of Nunavut has been stagnant at about 50% Inuit employment. And the vast majority of that is Inuit being in administrative positions when you look at the different job classifications. So we've been pushing both both the territorial government and the federal government to have detailed Inuit employment plans to outline how they want or how they expect to be able to train Inuit, how they expect to be able to have Inuit in the different positions. And we, um, NTI, commissioned um, PricewaterhouseCooper to do a report on what happens when we don't implement Article 23 when we're not able to achieve Inuit employment. And over a 10-year contract period, I think it was from 2017 to 2023, by not achieving 85% Inuit employment, Inuit are losing out in salary dollars upwards of $1.2 billion, mm-hmm. which could have been going into the territory, which could have been used by Inuit families to provide for themselves. So who is responsible for implementing those articles? All of us. Mm -hmm. Canada and Inuit, we all are responsible. What needs to happen is that the federal government and the territorial government need to work on developing the plan rather than saying it's a priority for us. We need to see the plan. We need to see... because. It's not enough to say this is a priority. Yes, we hope to have Inuit employment if there's no plan in place to be able to achieve that. If there are no training programs to be able to get Inuit trained to the skill set that they need to be able to do the job, then it doesn't matter how much hope one has. We will not be able to achieve it. And what we need to see is tangible ways in which we're going to achieve that. When you say it's a priority for us, do you mean you're speaking as NTI, as Inuit? I'm speaking, um, often we hear the territorial government say Inuit employment is a priority for us. Okay. And yet it's been stagnant at 50%. Okay. Okay. What do you see specifically is NTI's role to kind of make that happen? I'm going to use an example, specific example um, for Inuktut speaking teachers. Yeah. Okay. Um, So for the last year and a half, I've been saying government we need to focus on having more Inuktut-speaking teachers. We need to look at um, the current way in which um, the Nunavut Teacher Education Program is provided and serviced in our territory. We need to have community teacher education programs. Um, you, as you know, we have a housing crisis, mm-hmm. and uh, many people live in overcrowded housing. So... I'm going to use that as an example why some people might not want to move from one community to another to pursue training opportunities because there's no guarantee when you return to your community that you'd be able to get a housing unit. So so we need to figure out what are all the barriers and the challenges for people to successfully get through a training program that will get them employable. And I think we need to start looking at it in those small 
chunks mm-hmm. because it can become quite overwhelming when you think about all the different positions. That's exactly and what I, I was thinking. I'm and, just and, like, where do you begin? Like, yes. I don't. <laughs> and, I, and so that's why for me, a priority, and I've been continuing to say, let's prioritize, let's focus on teachers. Because if we're able to get increase the number of Inuktitut speaking teachers in our schools, by the end, when um, students graduate from grade 12, they'll have had the opportunity to get um, Inuktitut language of instruction in all subject areas. So by the time they graduate, they'll be bilingual in Inuktitut and English. They'll be bicultural. They'll understand Inuit worldviews as well as Canadian worldviews. And they'll be able to be in a position where they can choose to work and pursue school in Nunavut or choose to work or pursue school outside of Nunavut. And I think that's what we want. We want the best of both worlds for all young people graduating from school. And so for me, often the the great vast geography of Nunavut and then the small population of Nunavut is often viewed as a challenge. And I'm like, let's think about it in a different way and see that as a great strength and say, we have 25 communities across our territory. Let's look at Community X and figure out how many teachers we need to be able to provide Inuktitut language of instruction from kindergarten to grade 12. And let's have a community teacher education program offered in that school because we know that there's X number of substitute teachers Mm. who are Inuktitut speakers who presumably want to work in the school. Let's target them and encourage them to take the community teacher education program and target enough Inuit to be able to meet the need that we have in terms of reaching Inuktitut language of instruction in that community. And let's do that in each community one by one. And over time, we will see a difference rather than saying, yes, it's a priority for us to do it all and then not do anything. Mm -hmm. To dig down a little bit into that, um, you mentioned kind of identifying some of the barriers. Specifically, like what measures do you take to actually make that happen? Is it almost like more of a a lobbying effort? Is it to commission reports as NTI has done in the past? I'm at the point where I'm thinking we have enough reports, we have Mm -hmm. enough strategies, let's get down to it and Mm -hmm. get some action. So to me, let's say we choose a community then I think the first job would be to assess how many teachers that school needs. If it's one school or two schools in the community, how many teachers are required, how many substitute teachers there currently are, and figure out working with the um, DEA District Education Authority. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's that? Uh, District Education Authority. And working with them to make sure that this is the need that we have in this community because they are the experts of what the school system would need. And then working to provide with Nunavut Arctic College the community teacher education program okay, yeah. in, that, in that community. And actually picking up the phone and calling the substitute teachers and saying, this is what we're trying to offer this September. Because for me, it's not enough to say we offered that, but no one applied. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I say we need to start using our small population as a strength. Because when you go into any of our communities, people know everyone. So I think we need to start thinking of ways 
that work for us in our territory and not always rely on the way in which other jurisdictions might do it. You mentioned a little bit earlier how going through this kind of system where Inuktitut would be main language of the institution, where it also brings in that biculturality. Um, how does having the territory help promote that biculturality? Essentially what I'm getting at is balancing the Inuit traditions versus being in this more modern society that we all find ourselves in right now. How does the territory help achieve that balance? I think there was the vision that it would help okay. uh, achieve okay. that balance. I think we're still not quite there. Okay. Um, I think that the idea that by achieving, for instance, by implementing Article 23, that there would be a representative workforce, the idea was that Inuit would be in decision-making positions in the territorial government and would have a big influence on how programs and services are delivered and how they're designed. Um, and that would mean that it would be from an Inuit worldview and understanding. So I think that was what was envisioned. I think we still have quite a bit of um, work to do to be able to achieve that. I think we still can. Um, and I think we will continue to strive to. Well, I don't know of any other way to ask this other than like, what happened? Why has this not been implemented? You mentioned Article 23, and a little bit earlier you also said there was an active decision to not bring the language component into it as well. So what happened overall that these still have not been implemented? Um, there's a number of factors, but for sure in terms of Inuktitut as the working language, there was a decision by the federal government, the uh, Minister of Finance at the time, okay. that um, in terms of the territorial funding formula, um, for the creation of Nunavut, that Inuktut as the working language would be something that would be looked at at a later date. Okay. So that was that concrete decision made about that. Um, in terms of um, achieving a representative workforce, I think, I mean, in creating a new territory, there's so many things that need to be created. So... I don't want it to come across as absolutely negative. I think there's many things that have been accomplished um, by having a functioning public service. Like that's a great feat um, by having a territory with a functioning legislature. That's a great feat. Like there's so many and all the institutions of public governments um, that were created through the Nunavut agreement are all functioning, you know. So I think there's lots of things that have resulted as the creation of Nunavut, but there are certainly areas that we still need to improve. And in in my view, focusing on Article 23 will have a big impact in a positive way for the lives of Inuit, because not only would, be, would Inuit be employed and get a salary, and I think on the one hand, most Canadians would understand the benefit of that, but I just want to talk about it in an Inuit way, mm. because when... A person has a salary and is able to provide monetarily for their own family. They're now in a position to be able to purchase expensive hunting equipment, which might not be something more other Canadians think about. Um, but as Inuit, when we're able to afford hunting equipment, that means we're able to go hunt and bring back good nutritious food that we would prefer to eat, whether it be seal, whales, bears. Um, and that contributes to the well-being of the family, not only in a cultural sense, 
but it addresses the food insecurity issues that we have as, mm-hmm. as a territory. Um, and I think those are the aspects that sometimes are indirect, but so important to be able to provide for. Mm. I want to switch topics a little bit and kind of look at health in the news lately, there's been work done uh, by ITK, which I would imagine uh, NTI has been a part of as well, essentially implementing um, an Inuit-specific version, I guess, of Jordan's principle. Um, can you speak a little bit about that and about why there had to be an Inuit-specific version of this principle? There has to be Inuit-specific versions of absolutely everything. I'm just going to say that in terms of the um, pan-Indigenous context. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in Canada, we constitutionally Aboriginal peoples are recognized as First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. Our experience as Inuit is that often when we go to meetings in the South where they're talking about Aboriginal people, they're often talking about First Nations. That's the reality of it. And I think many Canadians are not acutely aware of any differences. And so much of our time as Inuit is often educating and raising the awareness of how we're different from First Nations or how we're different from Métis. And I would even suggest that amongst First Nations, there's probably differences that different nations have to differentiate and talk about Mm. we're different from this nation in this way, right? And I find it very interesting the political landscape, it's so much easier to lump everyone into one mm-hmm. um, and talk about those Aboriginal people or those Indigenous people. And I think one of the things I've noticed even with our federal government now, and it probably has been for a long time, is the desire to be able to go to a national Indigenous organization and say, perfect, we've now talk to Indigenous people by speaking with the National Indigenous mm-hmm. Organization. And I know as Inuit regions, we have Inuit that advocates on common issues nationally amongst the Inuit, four Inuit regions. But if there's anything specific for Nunavut, the expectation is that the federal ministers would still come to Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated or the regional Inuit associations. Gotcha. Um can you can you speak a little bit more about uh, this principle and how it differs from Jordan's principle? I, I don't know if it's been, I don't think it's been fully, how can I say this? Like, I don't know exactly where they are in kind of yeah, the process right now. Yeah, it's very preliminary. Yeah, so I yeah. don't know all the details of what what is going to be included yeah, or not included. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was when we realized that the Jordan's principle was... Um, solely for First Nations. I know ITK worked really hard to, because as it affects all Inuit regions. Mm -hmm. So ITK worked really hard to advocate for any Inuit-specific process that is similar. So I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but looking ahead now, what do you want to see happen or what would you like to see work towards the next 25 years look like for Nunavut? Okay. I know, that's a lot. So I would like to see that when federal government, when territorial government, when they're going to do something that's related to cultural and social programs, that there's no question you involve Inuit organizations, that it's it becomes so natural 
that it's not even something that we have to advocate mm-hmm, for. Mm-hmm. I would like to see where as Inuit, we've had discussions about these uncomfortable and hard discussions about how colonialism has impacted us so that we can liberate people to be able to speak about it and say, this was my experience, but it has nothing to do with who I am. And I am still proud to be Inuk. And the statistics get to a point where people don't think of Inuit and think high suicide rate, mm-hmm. that people don't think Inuit and food insecurity, that people don't think Inuit and not graduating from high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess the last question, I kind of sent out a tweet. What's a question you want me to ask? And someone had written back. Um, he's from Nunavik. And he had said, what can other regions, other regions in Inuit Nunangat learn from the Nunavut experience? I, well, I don't think it's a one-way thing. Fair. I think all of us, I think that we see as Inuit Nunangat, as the four Inuit regions, we see the value of meeting together regularly. So we're able to share experiences and learn from challenges from each other. So I think it goes both ways. Like recently, when I'm thinking about Nunavik, recently I was talking about how they have a research institution there. And we're learning from them on how we Mm. can do our own research on trichinella in walrus meat. And so we've learned from Nunavik about that. Um, I know that in Nunavut last year, we started piloting an Inuit marine monitoring program so that we have Inuit working for us out on the land, monitoring how many vessels, ships are going through the channels in our waters. And I know that other regions in Nunanga are interested in how, how that's going because they're interested in doing something similar mm. in their regions. So I think it's always two ways. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it for myself, unless there's anything else you want to add. No, thank you very yeah. much. No, yeah. thank you for coming in. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you to Aluki for taking the time to chat today. There was a lot of ground that we wanted to cover, too much for any one conversation, and we really hope to have her back again one day. With that, this brings us to the end of Season 1 of 360 North. Thank you so much to everyone who listened to this season. It's greatly appreciated. We're going to be working to bring you bigger and better things in Season 2. And until then, I will see you soon.